You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. James Thompson, the founder of Black Badger. He is a Canadian, but who currently lives in Sweden, and that is where his Black Badger workshop is, where he is right now. And speaking of today, James, what's up? Hi, how are you, man? It's nice to hear from you again. Yeah, we uh, we always have these great conversations when we meet up in Switzerland, but uh, that hasn't happened in a little while, so we we got to go virtual. Have you? You know, you're a social person. Has it been? Has it been a challenge for you to? You know be social enough during the pandemic? It's hard to it's hard to answer that without sounding like some kind of immature, needy, you know, golden retriever puppy of a person, but it's been really, really hard. I'm yeah. I'm such a social person. And I think that's well, because in Sweden we haven't had the same degree of lockdown, obviously, that other parts of the world has. So it hasn't been as bad. But just not having that easy give and take of social interaction, uh I, I've been really struggling. Like it just sucks. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of grumpy all the time now. A lot, of, a lot of people are. And the funny thing is that one of the immediate presumptions a lot of people had at the beginning of the pandemic was like, yeah, just the watch interest is just going to tank. But what we found is that you know, faced with being stuck at home on a screen and being kind of grumpy, people have been going to watches as their feel good hobby. I'm sure you've noticed a lot of that over the last year. Absolutely have. In fact, actually, in the first few months of when this all really started, whether it was maybe around, say, March 2020, I I was up probably 400% over the previous year. And I think a lot of it was that people were suddenly stuck at home on the couch with their iPhone on their hand. And maybe they'd had like vacation plans get canceled. So they had some money back. So I was just selling like crazy. And it's sort of like you don't want to tell too many people, right? You're like, you know, what if this doesn't last? I don't want to like brag because everyone's going through so much like hard times. Well, and right? it absolutely didn't last. Um, sort of by around the summer, I think these people started getting some of their credit card bills coming in and went, oh, God. Right. I don't have, I don't have a job, so maybe I'll stop sending all my money to James. Well, a lot of people thought it'd be over by the summer, right? They're like, yeah. okay, it's going to be like the world's longest snow day. And they're like, snow year. And they're like, snow year and a half. Like, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people are now worried about what the future means. A lot of careers have changed. Um, you know, and obviously for the luxury industry, that's that's a weird place to be because our little our little slice of the, uh, the, the world of culture is highly dependent on uh, a lot of people being in good mood and 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 having good times there, there's a predominant sense that good times are sort of around the corner again. Is it like that in Sweden, or is it just sort of the uh, the, the mantra that's in America right now? Well, I think we're definitely seeing the mantra that's coming from the United States and North, uh, Canada and North America and such, and it's really encouraging. Um, my family still lives in in Vancouver in Canada, and it's it's still scary and still got to be really serious about it, but it does feel like it is getting better. Um, Sweden has been the, the kind of middle of the road country for this entire pandemic. And I would get people emailing me almost every day saying, you know, hey, they were talking about Sweden on the news tonight in Dubai. And they said, you're all going to die. 
great. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, man. But so it, it, it is getting a little brighter. I think the whole social distancing thing maybe wasn't as big of a deal here because no offense to my family and friends, but because Swedes are, are quite socially distant. As it is, it's like, it's like, man, right. not that different. Just a little bit more warmth around the face now. Yeah, you just, you don't smile at people. You don't sit next to somebody on the bus. You don't hold the door open for somebody. So that was easy peasy. But it, overall, it does feel like it's getting better. And spring is coming, so the days are getting brighter and lighter, and there's flowers out, and it just, it, it, just, it feels a lot better. The springtime of our civilization is coming back a little bit. And I guess the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that this entire period has had a lot of visual associations with it. And designers are going to be inspired by, I don't know, anything from like healthcare equipment to just imagery we've been seeing during the pandemic. What do you think is going to be the effect in sort of your your world, which is, you know, an intersection between, you know, uh, men's jewelry and wristwatches? I, I'm really trying to sort of take my own path with this. I think the last couple of years, there's been so much negativity and so much fighting and so much divisiveness and so much just hate that I'm just going pure joy. I'm going to, everything I'm going to do is just going to be so happy and colorful and just put my own little vibe out there. Cause I was the one who got caught up in all these idiotic arguments on Facebook over a certain high profile political figure. That was very polarizing in North America. And it just, it was so much fighting. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam Cranioles. <laughs> so I'm just going to, you know, just happy. And I'm really honestly thinking that this is going to be kind of a bit of a roaring 20s vibe. Because when this is finished, think of all the albums and the movies and just everything that's going to come blasting out again. Think of walking down the street and every cafe is full of people and friends. And this is fantastic. It's going to be a new energy for a long time. And I think that in the creative world, it's going to manifest itself in a lot of ways. Now, let's back up a little bit. For people that don't know who you are, what Black Badger is, we'll give a little bit of an introduction. And I'll sort of do it vis-a-vis -vis me uh, learning about who you were. Because you, you had a bit of a reputation before I met you to me. And it was okay. actually other members of the Abroad to Watch team that were talking about your, your stuff. Now, the first type of product that I knew about that you made were rings, men's mm -hmm. rings that have uh, different sections and different colors of luminous material. And what James really did that sort of was innovative in a lot of ways was create, and again, correct me if I'm wrong anywhere here, create solid pieces of luminous material that are millable and cuttable because before that, most of it was liquid or paint and it was very limited what you could do. So you had these various formulations that you were making of all different types of, of, of colors and things like that, oftentimes luminant colors. And you were saying, let's make, let's make wearable men's stuff. And it's funny because the, the team was really excited about like men's jewelry, which is funny because we're in the watch space. Watches are men's jewelry, but men don't tend to wear a lot of jewelry. Some guys are doing more and more of it. To have masculine jewelry is, is a hard thing to get right. And you're sort of the rare guy who's been able to do that. Um, when you were growing up, did, did you know you'd be a jewelry maker? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, I will talk about reputation. I've been referred to several people as kind of being the Forrest Gump of design. About, <laughs> uh, it's a bit backhanded. But just by being kind of in the right place at the right time and being the right kind of personality to sort of see when something's coming and see what's happening. 
So I started making rings literally out of boredom when I was in design school. Um, the really sort of quick answer is I can't sketch. I cannot sketch to save my life. And that's quite a handicap as a designer. Perspective sketching, I think. Oh, my Lord. Guys that are good at that or people that are like, I want to be, I want to take their hands. I'm like, let me sketch like you, ma'am. Like, I wish I could make things out of me. Like, it's so easy to them. And I'm like you. I, I appreciate sketching to know that I suck at sketching. Yeah. It's the same thing like with basketball. I don't like it because I know I'm terrible at it. So I have this natural chip on my shoulder towards, you know, basketball or any of these kinds of like playing guitar. I can't do it. Damn you if you can. Which is funny because when we grew up, everyone told us you could do anything you want, even if you if you're not good at it. Which as now we're adults, we're like, no, that was bad advice. That was bad advice. No, so I was always more of a model maker. Um, I was very comfortable in the in the shop at school. So I would always go in on the weekends. And when I started studying here in Lund, in, in the, the first school I was at here in Sweden in 2002, we had this phenomenally high-end machine shop. And I would just go in there on the weekend and I would buy a bar of titanium from a place that made bicycles or something, get a little scrap piece. And I would make like the first rings I made, a titanium ring like for my brother for Christmas. And it was all really cool and fun. And nobody really kind of gave me crap about it. Like it, it wasn't really, I think because the aesthetic, especially with quote unquote dudes, as soon as you're making something that's titanium or carbon fiber, or you know, all these cool kind of air force, Tom Clancy materials, what people really got excited about was the fact that they had something that was made of the same material as the space shuttle or as a satellite. So the actual ring itself, the form of it, I would almost say it didn't matter. Yeah, and, it, and, the, and the form, correct me if I'm wrong, they are traditional ring forms, just in totally different materials and different styles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just, I would almost say I use Black Badger like a materials orphanage. Um, I mean, I looking through my workbench yesterday, there's all these funky exotic alloys that were, I've got super magnesium, which was something that was only kind of Department of Defense declassified a couple of years ago, where I got scrap from the production of the F-117 stealth fighter and just, you know, pieces of Formula One cars lying around. So somebody maybe wants a fairly traditional style, say of a wedding band for a guy. And he's like, well, gold, you know, yeah, gold's not really my thing. It's kind of shiny. And it turns out this person, say, is really into motorcycles. You're like, well, why don't you bring me a, a busted up, broken, you know, titanium piece of your racing Ducati motorcycle? And you make it out of that. And you've now added such a distinct secondary level of appeal to things. He shows the ring. Oh, yeah, cool band. Oh, nice and classic. I like it. He tells somebody what it is. And suddenly you've got a, like a person from the other side of the table who's a massive, you know, GP fan comes running over and wants to see this thing. It's it's like the band shirt. People like to wear the stuff they're into. It's just a weird part of our our human condition. That is such a good analogy. The band shirt. Everybody wants to be the insider. You know, and, I mean, it, it's yeah. just like the the MDNF hat I got that just arrived in the mail the other day. You know, nobody around here will probably recognize the brand, but the one person that does will be suddenly like it'll be like you've just met your kindred spirit. Yeah, and it's it's instant, you know, affiliation and sort of a a, a similar group, a shared appreciation. I mean, it's it's how we make friends, and I think it's actually it's not spoken about that much because it's not considered super manly. But as adults, for men and women, it's it's hard to make friends, and 
yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you have to display who you are and what you like through your clothing or it's never going to happen for you. That's a really, really cool angle. And I've actually never discussed it in that, in that sort of specific direction, but social acceptance, I think actually is, is quite an interesting dynamic because there are some people that will view a guy wearing a ring. It's like, Oh, is it your wedding ring? No, it's just a cool ring to have. Oh, okay. What's, what's wrong with you? You know, like they instantly think you're going to have like a toe ring and flowers in your hair and all this sort of <laughs> crazy hippie sort of stuff. But no, and I mean, the most established accepted piece of, I hate the expression, but male jewelry is what you and I are both in the business of. It's the bloody watches. Yeah. And they do a really good job. But then at the end of the day, it's a bracelet that happens to tell you something useful like the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's beautiful, a beautiful thing. thing. There's nothing wrong with that. We have to express ourselves, don't we? As a product, it's, it's dead tech. I mean, having, how having dare a, you, sir? No, but seriously, like I'm, I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but I'm doing it happily. Like having well, a, mecha- a mechanical wristwatch for the job of accurately recording the passing of time. Mechanical wristwatch is terrible. You know, my, okay, my, okay. my, my Casio G-Shock is 40,000 times more accurate than the MBNF that I'm wearing. It's not that many more but times, I, but I see oh, what you're saying. Oh, super much. But I don't get, I don't get passionate about that I can read the time on my iPhone. That's like a photograph versus an oil painting. The, the, and the beautiful fact that thing about watches organ. is that while we intellectually appreciate a device to tell the time, that's not really what creates the emotional connection now, is it? Absolutely. Absolutely agree. Yeah. So that's really interesting is what makes us fall in love with these funny little pieces. Is it that they're, they're kind of alive, that they're sitting there ticking, they're doing something on your wrist even when you're not paying attention to it? Is it that it makes you think more about the passage of time and mortality and et cetera, et cetera, than a cold anonymous digital display on your iPhone? It's, it's really interesting. And I think finding out what that one little kernel, what that one little molecule is that makes the two of those things different. If you can then take that kernel and then place it somewhere else, whether it's in car design, whether it's in interior goods, whether it's in architecture, you're going to find that people relate to your project on a very personal level. And the way that you make somebody keep a chunk of metal and rubber close to their heart and in their life is you make them fall in love with it a little bit. But that can be easier said than done. I mean, to make someone fall in love with a watch, just like a person, you can't just stick them next to each other and be like, okay, in a week, they're going to be good. More than that. (laughs) If only it was that easy. I think I could have retired by now. (laughs) Right? It's it's finding the relatability. Like I said, it's, 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 it's a reminder. It reminds you of an emotion. You see that carbon fiber on your watch or in your in your ring and you think of the other things that carbon fiber is used for and it's like must yep. tell world i like formula one no one can not know <laughs> about this you know it's it's really i'm so passionate about something i have to share and again i'm boiling it down to like very very simple terminology but i really do feel that this represents the psychology at play most of the time in this space even though you yourself in the shoes of the designer as the artist you probably aren't thinking this way. Oftentimes, the success is um, not accidental, but coincidental to what your actual artistic goal is. Hmm. Jeez, that's interesting, man. 
You don't spend this much time thinking about the philosophy of art appreciation. Come on. <laughs> I, I wish I could. It, it's it's basically it's the machine shop, then it's at home peeling bananas and watching Paw Patrol with the kids. So okay, okay. Aside no, from no. Paw Patrol, um, what what are some of the famous characters <laughs> that actually wear your stuff? Okay, like there are oh, wow, some yeah. celebrities out there. I know you don't have to name a lot of names, but there's some really important and fa- popular people out there that have black badger stuff. Um, how does that make you feel? And maybe who are some of these people if you can name drop? I know that if I'm supposed to be a mature, intelligent professional, it shouldn't make uh-huh. a difference. But man, I work by myself. You know, you can hear the echo in here. I'm in an empty studio by myself. It absolutely motivates you. And it just it just gives you a bit of an ego boost. The first real big sort of celebrity client I got was Ken Block, who does all the Gymkhana videos and stuff. The, the unbelievable car driver, co-founder of DC Shoes. Um. I made his wedding ring actually without knowing it was for him. His his agent sort of set up the whole deal. Uh, so then about six months later, agent contacts me and, and says, hey, my, my client, um, oh, it was something like he, he lost the ring fishing in Mexico. In, but he's a race driver, so he likes spare parts. So he'd like to buy four more identical rings. So I was just happy that I sold four rings. And then later on in the conversation, he says, yeah, just Google Ken Block and see who it is. Yeah. And of course, I just watched the episode of, of Top Gear like two days before where he's right. driving, driving James May around and just want to make him sick all over the car. That was very fun because that kind of gave me the back door into the, the cool outsider end of the car industry. Right. Like I, I'm not especially into cars. I don't have a driver's license over here. But through wow. Ken, well, I know I had it in Vancouver and such, but I never bothered to get it in Sweden. Anyhow, so so just by him having my stuff, all of his buddies started contacting me saying, yeah, can you make me a ring like Ken has? So suddenly there's all these really famous rally drivers and stunt drivers and the drifting guys. You know, like I'm, I'm actually sponsored by Monster Energy, kind of sort of semi-unofficially through knowing like the all, drink? all these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, do you like, do you chug it and work? Uh, no, I, I would probably catch fire. You're if I supposed drink too to much. say that. That's part of the contract. That's right. You, you chug, you chug a monster every morning, and then every day when you get to work, and then you just you you work while perspiring, and it's actually yeah. a perspiring monster energy drink, and then and you then do I, it again every day, and you would and die. Then I just ram my head through a concrete wall. <laughs> yeah, that's the the way of the monster. But the real the real sort of marquee names, I would say. Um, Robert Downey Jr. has has a couple pieces, okay. um, which is just unbelievably kick-ass, fantastic. He seems like someone that would wear multiple rings at the same time. Is he one of those guys? I think so, yeah. He's got okay. a couple that he switches between, and every time a picture shows up of, of him wearing it, I've got a couple of buddies that are like watch spotters, and I just start getting bombarded with pictures. Oh my God, here he is at dinner wearing your ring. It's fantastic. Oh, that, must, that must feel good. People like the, the paparazzi is, is also looking at you. Uh, I, I wish, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar. I'll, I'll take that. No, does that? Okay, here's the thing. These days, people are like, oh, you know, if you're on a celebrity, you know, that's an influencer, and it's gonna be really big for you. Is, is it true that once some popular people have chosen your stuff, it becomes a thing, and you're quite, you're kind of like set, or do you have to keep making that happen all the time? The momentum goes away. Definitely have to keep making it happen all the time. Um, I think a lot of it is just. Instagram, I don't think has the same kind of influencer bite that maybe right. it did in you know, going back eight or 10 years almost. Um, 
But definitely, like, I mean, well, especially because of the timing. Um, basically, I picked up Robert Downey Jr. as a client three days after he stopped being Iron Man. This was the worst timing in the history of the universe. But hey, I got him for Dr. Doolittle. Uh, don't, oh, don't, well, that's not don't as tell good. Him I said that. Don't tell him I said that. Not we'll as good. I don't think he, I think he already knows. Yeah. Um, that was very, very fun. And I'm just ridiculously proud of that. And I've got pictures of him wearing one of those V3 uh, black gold spinner rings that I do with my friend Mark Gold of South Africa. And it's this big chunky ring with rotating loom components that spins around. It's really cool. So I'm going to go to your Instagram page right now um, because that's where that's where a lot of your stuff is, right? Like if anybody wants to know about Black Badger stuff, go on your Instagram page. Like that's the best place to see sort of the variety of your work, right? It, it really is. It's the most dynamic. Um, and the Instagram is just simply at Black Badger, one word. Um, it has links to the web shop and all that kind of stuff, but really where a lot of the action happens um, is, is, is through my Instagram. Now, now, here's a question. Is there a business model for you outside of, of Instagram? Like, are, Because there's so many companies that go ahead. Ha, I mean, they, they have amazing products by all means, but uh, through Instagram or something like Instagram made it, whereas I'm not sure how they would have made it otherwise. Not saying they couldn't. I'm just wondering like, you know, how crucial is that to where you are today? I'm just curious. I think it was very much a sign of the times that in the beginning, um, like originally, even before Instagram, it was Twitter. And I had a couple of these race car people who would sometimes add me. There was always the hashtag follow Friday. So some of these people would add a black badger hashtag FF, you know, like on Fridays, they would just list cool people to go follow. Right. So I kind of got a bit of a start through there and started getting noticed by some of these kind of exciting, cool, high-profile people. And then that translated into Instagram quite well. Because with Instagram, I just got... I became good quite early at weaseling my way in the back door to a party that I wasn't invited to. Uh, which I think is actually, to be honest, a more important skill set than... Can I can I draw or any of these kinds of more traditional designers? I mean, they skills. joke about wedding crashing, but it really gets you yeah. into places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would just kind of through through doing exactly that, through basically jumping into a conversation that I a friend of mine was a part of, but I wasn't really a part of, and just by being funny, I guess you would say, I got to be really good buddies with this guy named Frank Stephenson, and Frank Stephenson was the design chief of McLaren designed the McLaren P1 and all these amazing Ferraris. He's literally one of the most famous influential car designers of all time. And we got to be buddies through Twitter and Instagram. So we'd be sending funny little things back and forth. And he wears some of my stuff and he shows it to his friends, which is really quite cool because through Frank, I've now picked up a rather high profile client, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, former governor of California, has has... Familiar. He's one of my heroes. I tell you, he's got one of my rings now. And this came to be because Frank has a couple pieces and he, I forget whether they met up at a car show or something. And I get this text from Frank in the middle of the day saying, Hey, so I'm sitting here with a buddy of mine and he's really kind of jazzed about this ring. You know, like he and I are sitting here looking at your website, you know, can we have this instead of this? And can we change this color? And I'm kind of rolling my eyes a bit like, Oh, it's just going to be some kind of really really needy, overly wealthy car collector person. And he's like, yeah, it, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, we can, I think we can do that. I mean, the man has big hands and big, 
big fingers. Uh, I, I got to give him that. He pulls off the big watches very well. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does. Um, and and it's just such a it's such a fun motivational thing. You don't want to just keep constantly putting out pictures saying, "Look who's wearing my stuff," because it just gets to be like at that point you're just doing it for likes, and that always feels really kind of disingenuous. Well, I think I think it's important to to sort of position yourself in culture. Obviously, you're still growing as a brand. You're still developing the things you're going to do. But that you have achieved a level where taste leaders... I mean, let's let's face it. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Robert Downey Jr., they can wear whatever rings they want, <clears throat> okay? Any type of ring that exists, precious stones, any type of rarity they can wear. They get to choose literally whatever friggin' rings or not to wear any rings that they want. So... To say they chose something and it not being like, oh, well, this is the world's most expensive ring. Your, your stuff is de definitely a luxury product, but, you know, it's not like solid diamond baguettes all around. So for them to choose that, that's telling. That means that these guys and, and both of those men are really into style, really like cool stuff. I respect their taste. Not all celebrities, but like if Arnold's into something, I want to take that seriously. So that's sort of just a tacit symbol to the rest of the world that people who have been exposed to like all options have chosen Black Badger. And that's really cool. It's, it's one of those things that when it's like a crappy gray rainy day and I've just completely destroyed everything I've touched by accident today in the studio here, it, it is one of those things that I'll, I'll be going through my phone and I'll see this picture of Arnold riding his bike through LA wearing this giant sort of stars and stripes glowing American flag ring that we designed with him. And it just, you're like, hell yeah, we, we got it right. Oh, I saw a picture of that. That was that was his design. That's cool. Yeah. It's um, like the Captain America Shield of Rings. That that's exactly exactly what it is. And it's just that just makes you feel good. So you're just sitting there and you're like, well, like Arnold might be fingering my ring on his finger right now. Like <laughs> just it helps a little pick me up. <laughs> I'm just gonna let that comment hit the ground. Yeah, yeah. And and twitch a few times. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like I I only have one picture from this other uh, client and I was asked not to sort of show it around, not to post it on Instagram at the time. Cause it was something fairly politically charged. And this person was outspoken about the previous administration. Um, it was, I've got pictures of Robert De Niro wearing, wearing one of my rings. We're talking about De Niro. Good fellas. De Niro, that's a big deal. Bloody cool. Yeah. That is but really then, cool. No, when no, I got okay, the picture, so it was like, but, but you know, there's a lot of sort of high profile people that are kind of bicking at him for what he said. So just don't post this on Instagram. It's sort of just a personal thing. So I, got I don't this even picture. know what he said recently. I'm not connected enough to even know, but no, we'll no, talk was, about that. It was the, the unpleasantness when there was, you know, so much arguing and all this kind of stuff in the States, but um, right. yeah, yeah, I'll just leave it all alone entirely. I, w I want to talk about what I call wood grain. Okay. So, Okay. Uh, a lot of your materials um, feature what I call a wood grain. And the idea is that uh, this is sort of a, I guess, a, a sort of an organic layering and shaping. And in the sort of world of jewelry and watches and things like that, this is most manifested aside from actual wood um, in a certain type of steel called Damascus steel, which is a layered and forged steel, which is pounded and it creates, I guess, for lack of a better term, a wood grain look. Yeah. In more recent times, uh, people have been able to do this um, with various other types of materials, carbons and things like that. that They've been able to mix different colors and twist. And then you achieve this sort of, again, wood grain. I guess my question is, is there something inherently 
appealing about this wood grain look? Because it seems like doing it in different colors and different materials, it just seems to get more and more compelling. What I really personally react to about it, um, both from a design manufacturing standpoint and also, you know, like the ring that I'm wearing right now, is you're taking a very, very synthetic manufactured product, being steel or carbon fiber or whatever, and you're making it look organic just by putting that kind of living wood grain effect going through it, which is just the natural structure of the material. But by working it in a way, like with carbon fiber, when I would start doing rings, Jesus, 20 years ago now, holy crap. If you would cut the ring, like normally you would wrap carbon, like a very thin cloth, and you get this kind of predictable sort of checkerboard pattern on the outside. I was working when I first came to Sweden at a place down in the southern part of the country that did a lot of component manufacturing for Koenigsegg cars. So I would get some of these scrap chunks that they would be milling part of the chassis out of and stuff. And it was like a two centimeter thick, flawless, spectacular block of, you know, hundreds of layers of carbon fiber. And just by looking at it from the side profile, as compared to the top down, you get a completely different effect. It goes from looking super rectilinear to really kind of organic, almost this kind of elvish Lord of the Rings, you know, like waterfall kind of effect to it. So that's really fun because the material itself has not been changed at all. But just by changing the way that you approach it and interact with it, you get a completely different effect. You go from super high-tech fighter jet to kind of spacey, organic, Doctor Strange kind of look. And it's true because... As modern guys, a lot of people have this appreciation for these high-tech, you know, pieces of machinery, vehicles, you know, performance equipment. But there's no, there's not a lot of ways of wearing that, right? There's not like carbon fiber. Actually, there probably are some carbon fiber shoes, but most of these exotic materials, we can't get them in our everyday goods. And so to get them in something like our jewelry, be it a ring or a watch or whatever, is a very satisfying way of being reminded about something we like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just sort of trying to like boil down some of the core appeal because there is sort of a formula at play which you have to be mindful of or else you can easily design something weird that nobody wants, right? Well, and it's a very aspirational way of working. Um, a lot of the way that I got into these funky materials, titanium and carbon fiber and such, was when I was younger, like when I was in high school, I was really into cycling, sort of Tour de France style cycling. And everything at the time was carbon fiber bikes and, you know, Greg LeMond and all this really cool wind tunnel sort of stuff that I just loved. So I really liked having a ring that was, you know, kind of the same material as this insane, really alien, organic looking wind tunnel bike. Um, so when I was wearing this ring, whether I intended to or not, what I was basically saying to the world was, this is where my mind is right now. This is who I want to be. And I think that level of aspirational marketing, I mean, if, if the watch industry doesn't do it perfectly, the wine industry bloody well does, right? You don't just show <laughs> right. a bottle of wine and say, here's some fermented grape juice and it has some booze in it and it'll make you forget your problems, whatever. You show the vineyards, you show Tuscany, you show Provence, you show all these beautiful, you know, the terroir behind it. And I would almost say that that method is really what I try and do a lot in my stuff. By getting excited about the terroir, for want of a better term, of the product, that is really a good way to extend the desirability of it. A pen might not be the sexiest, most exciting thing in the world, but if you have a pen that's made from a 
part of the barrel of, from one of the world's most famous, you know, champagne wineries or something. <laughs> if that's your hobby, that's going to be something that you're going to be more excited about than somebody who's really into surfing. People like exceptional versions of ordinary things. Oh, this is like a fetish dude, we have. That's the t-shirt. That should be the new Black Badger t-shirt. Exceptional <laughs> versions of ordinary things. No, because I've never once, well, only once, worked with gold or diamonds or any of these really sort of precious metals. Um, and, and I don't have a lot of interest in that. But if you can get, like we were saying about some of these clients, if you can get somebody that can afford easily platinum and diamonds and all that, if you can get them excited about a chunk of steel, that is so much more successful than just, well, this is a luxury product because it's expensive. You, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, all of this, you know, like you said about platinum, and I'm looking at some of your pictures here on Instagram. One of the things I'm realizing, we've, we all, we've all sort of known it, is that flashiness as a, as a thing is, is still very alive and well, but it's very different these, these days. And don't get me wrong, there's still plenty of room for gold and diamonds and precious stones, but mainstream flashiness is manifested by colors and to a degree materials and things like that. But it's really sort of about um, colors. You know, it are these bird displays. We are an extremely crowded society with a lot of people trying to show off. Like gold is almost not bold enough anymore. It doesn't stand out as much as, you know, um, a, a rainbow, for example, right? Yeah. Maybe we're reaching a time where flashiness has had to sort of step it up a notch because there's just so much more competition out there for visibility. And whereas maybe a couple of uh, decades ago, we could have got away with being sparkly, all of a sudden, uh, and I'm not saying flashiness is bad. It can be bad, but it's just, it's just saying that I want the world to pay attention to me. It's just sort of a, it's a different game these days, right? I absolutely love, absolutely love that you use the term bird displays. That is, uh, uh, <coughs> I'm choking on my agreement. <coughs> Sorry. That is 100% of the way that I feel. And that's a, a method of thinking that I can attribute to this friendship with Frank Stephenson. Because as having a dude like this as essentially a mentor is spectacular. And he really is a huge proponent of this biomimicry, what he calls shrink wrap design. So if you look at one of their cars, there is nothing extra on it. It is so boiled down, mostly for performance reasons. But if you look in nature, like you're not going to see a cheetah with big, long, floppy ears because they're detrimental. They add nothing. So having these little cues from nature is just something that as people, we always react on a different level to. So if something is really, really sparkly these days, to be in my limited opinion, in these days, I almost see that as kind of a, a cry for help. If I just cover myself head to toe in diamonds, it, for me, it basically says... It's quite good, insecure. It's quite it insecure. No, it's really insecure these but days. But with color displays, those little tiny Costa Rican poison arrow frogs, the bright blue and the bright pink ones, birds with their color displays, what are they doing with it? They're either saying, holy crap, watch what I'm about to do. Or they're saying, back off, I'm dangerous. That's cool. That's sending a very different message from I'm covered head to toe in diamonds and blue velvets and all these kinds of things, which I do all the time. Do, do you talk <laughs> about the, the materials that you use? Like, I really want to have you explain how much you do sort of hands-on because you're not just sort of like 
doing the design in CAD, sending it off to some like factory somewhere. You design and you make and you experiment and you play. Um, you know, I guess I guess really the point is how difficult would it be to replicate what you do? How much of the materials are your own? You know, how special uh, is your craftsmanship? Oh, geez. Geez, am I the right person to answer that? <laughs> sure you are. It's your work. The materials, um, I really try and let the materials take center stage as much as possible. Uh, and that that's just my own sort of personal personal vibe and personal interest. I, I tend to take a lot of my creative inspiration and just the method in which I work. I get more inspired by, say, chefs than I do from famous architects and designers and all this, all this kind of stuff. Because I could take the exact same tomato as pick a chef, I don't know, uh, Anthony Bourdain, and look at the different results we would get from the exact same object, the tomato. That's really fun. And I think if you can let the material take center stage, if the material is of the quality and has a story to tell, as a designer and as a chef, you almost want to kind of stay out of the way as much as you can. Because if I have to take this cool piece of material and I have to beat you over the head with the story and I have to just rub it in your face about me telling you how awesome and how cool this is, well, then you don't need a designed object. It's, it's well, very easy to overdo it. But are you, are you designing the materials? Because I know that you have some materials that are exclusive to you. So I think it's important to say when you oh. just buy a tube of something or I got to make this stuff first before I ever mill it into something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the original loom material, which I think is what you're meaning here. Um, I was working with a company in Canada and basically we were purpose, purpose developing solid bricks, solid tiles of loom for want of a better term. This was really fun because I had started working a bit with some glow products and I was really excited and really passionate about it, but I was really kind of handicapped by the application methods. So if you think about something like super luminova at the time, you know, like when I first started doing stuff, say around 2013 or so, it was basically, it was a topical coating. It was something you would paint on the hands or on the indicators and it would glow and it worked fine. But if you really wanted to push the limits, Maybe instead of just painting loom onto the finished hands of the watch, what if the watch hand itself could be manufactured from solid luminescent material? And this was a real game changer. Why, why did that take so long? I, like, I don't, you know I don't I mean? know. Like, it's I not that know. novel of an idea. Like, like it's duh, really, you know it's I mean? really not. Um, I think a lot of it was just the the technology, maybe. To a certain extent, I think also a lot of it was just simply getting people to go, yeah, okay, that could work. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not claiming any sort of credit for this. The reason that that method ended up getting quite a lot of traction was because the first watch we're doing this was a watch that I did with MBNF. And let's be honest, that's a brand that has a pretty big net to throw and is very, very, very respected and high profile. That's a lot of cachet. When you did that, there's a lot, a lot of cachet, cachet for you. And if a brand like MBNF says, okay, we want you to take a look at what this pudgy weirdo in Sweden is doing, you know, check out his stuff. That instantly um, 
gives quite a bit of credit and also puts a lot of gravity on it. So what what is luminous material? Like, I know what it is, but I don't think a lot of people understand the idea that uh, incoming light, um, you know, excites particles in there that take a while to become, you know, unexcited. And during that process, they re-emit light. Like, I don't even know the physics behind it. I just know the basics. Like, what is this material? Why does it glow? Uh, you know, how, how hard is it to make it glow more? Well, I've gone through a couple different generations of this material um, through different manufacturers and different sort of, et cetera, et cetera. The stuff that I'm using now, um, what, I'm, what I'm calling badgerite, purely for sort of clarity, um, I'm working directly with Swiss Superluminova, oddly enough, in Switzerland. And we're, we're pretty much in, I would say, daily contact. So what we're doing is I'm, I'm kind of helping them come up with new, new and weird applications and methods and things they can do. And in return, they kind of use me as a bit of an unofficial skunk works. So I'm getting, that's cool. So I'm getting access to all this stuff that's coming out, all the new emerging tech. Make not sure it's not radioactive. No, no, I'll, 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 I'll cover <laughs> that and make sure I come back to it. You, ra- you radium fans will get that joke. <laughs> <laughs> but because I'm a one person company, I'm so fast and so adaptable and so flexible that I, I will actually get access to this stuff for like six months before even, I don't know, someone like Rolex or Hublot does. So for a little, you know, Joe, nobody standing here, that is unbelievably beneficial. How much technology are they sitting on that like no one is really using? You're like, why isn't any brand using this stuff? Um, larger companies don't exactly turn on a dime. You know, okay. it's a little bit like if, if, I don't know, if, if Bruce Springsteen suddenly decides he's going to put out a reggae album or something, everyone kind of goes, what, 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 huh? It's become a lot more prevalent now. I think you're seeing a lot of the more showpiece boutique legacy brands are actually starting to incorporate weird, funky little bits of light into their design. So whereas it used to be this topical coding that was very much an afterthought purely for legibility, now you're seeing brands say, well, let's use some of this crazy light and actually have some fun and actually put a bit of art into this piece. So you're seeing uh, F.P. Juren has done some really cool loom stuff. Um, Oh, God. I mean, even like uh, Hermes and these brands are doing really fun things with light. So it's it's really cool, and a lot of that is the technology is constantly evolving, so that you can do more and more, and the material is more and more high prof, um, high power. And to what you were saying before about about radium, yeah, it's not radioactive. <laughs> since about the early since the early nineties, um, first there was radium, then there was tritium, and now superluminova. And it's it's completely completely safe. Yeah. Um, the difference is those first two materials, radium and tritium, generated their own light through a uh, mild radioactive radio, emission, a mild nuclear decay event. Whereas yeah, it's, ra- it's radioactive and, emission. That's what it is. And it, it worked fine unless you were applying it, licking it, got very sick. Um, yeah. But that, but that also <laughs> had a half life. So this material was always glowing. But just like a candle, it'll burn down over time. So with superluminova, absolutely cutting-edge stuff. And it's passive. It soaks up light, many ambient light source. The, the active ingredients in it get excited and will then emit light. 
So it's constantly charging and recharging with every time you expose it to a light source. If you don't charge it, you know, if, if I put my glowing ring that I have on now, if I put this in a drawer and it doesn't get exposed to light for a couple of days, you take it out into the dark and it'll be non-glowing. Blast it with the light or hold it up to a sunny window. It's now glowing again. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blogged Watch Store and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blogged Watch Store. Right now, the Blogged Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Let me, let me ask you a question. Why is it that, at least from a watch perspective, some watches that have lumen seem to glow a lot brighter than others? Sometimes it does seem to be the volume of lumen in it, but sometimes it seems to be unrelated to that. Are there different grades of it? Because I, I, it's something I don't know that much about, but definitely, I mean, you've seen enough watches to know that like not all lumen is created equal. <laughs> That'll be the name of my memoirs. A lot of <laughs> there it, you go. <laughs> a lot of it from my kind of outsider view, what I can see is there's still brands that are kind of treating it like a bit of an afterthought. You design the watch and then at the end you go, oh yeah, crap, the hands like need to the glow. sapphire okay. crystal on top of it. Kinda, pretty much, right? It's just it's an it's there so you can cross it off the list. Whereas the brands that are doing something that is much more noticeable. Um, either it's the application method. There, there are different grades of it. There's A grade, there's B grade, there's et cetera, et cetera. There's something that I'm using every chance that I get, and that's called X1 grade. Ooh, and this even this, sounds fancy. Right? Totally high tech. X1 is the highest performing grade of photoluminescent material in the world. And it is epic. I mean, I, I What's chemically different about it than B or C grade or whatever? Uh, the amount of light that is generated by it and the duration but of like, the glow. What, but why? What's like what? I, again, I don't know how what the actual material is. I, I know how it works in principle, but like, oh, okay, okay. Why is it? You know what I mean? Um, that's all basically part of the manufacturing process. Uh, when they're when Superluminova is is manufacturing the base you know, strontium luminate, the the active ingredient, by doing different chemical processes and such, you can have something that emits. A grade, which is so-so, B grade, oh, I so-so, and the X1 grade has been engineered and formulated that the emission is something like 300% more than the more industrial grade. You're talking Superluminova Pro right here. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and I'm kind of bugging them on a daily basis saying, guys, X2. X3, come on, come on, come on. Like I'm like this yappy little dog just irritating the hell out of these poor people because the kind of pieces that I've done and the kind of company that I have, I if I put out a ring and I try and save a few dollars and I use the B grade, which is fine, 
you know, unless you put the two pieces together and notice the difference, you'll be happy with it. But the instant that I do something and someone goes, yeah, it glows. Okay. My reputation is shot and I should go open a taco, a taco truck somewhere. I got to explain something here for people that don't know. I have seen people who are black badger ring wearers uh, carry around a small ultraviolet flashlight in their pocket. This is also used because you can sort of <laughs> charge up a loom dial. But a lot of the individuals that would buy a glow-in-the-dark ring have a small <laughs> lamp in their pocket that they can use to charge it. And if you've ever seen a glow-in-the-dark material under ultraviolet light, you, you know exactly uh, you know, what, what I'm talking about. It, it makes it, you know, sort of like it's, it's, a, it's a, an enhanced glow, so to say. So if, if the Black Badger ring doesn't perform, you know, as expected under legend, then, you know, you're going to get a nasty email and you don't want that to happen. Sure. Uh, That's exactly right. I mean, you can get, I'm having massive problems with people just outright sort of copying the more basic designs and chucking them up on Kickstarter or eBay. And I've even seen my stuff on Alibaba, which is actually kind of cool, but Oh my gosh. It it, it won't perform not one tenth as well. And for some people, you know, that's fine. You just want a little 10, $15 ring. You don't really care. Oh, that's kind of fun. Lose interest. But if you want it to be, you know, if you're the kind of person that's going to want to have an Arcanaut watch, an MBNF watch, or you know, one of these fantastic brands, you want a certain level of performance. You don't want to jump in your Ferrari, hit the gas, and it kind of goes, <coughs> because you've now killed the magic. You should say that on your website. You should say, you should say people, only Black Badger watches glow with, I don't know, a luminosity rating. I have no idea. But like, like put the fear of fakes into them. That's, that's important to do. You have to tell them what they're missing if they don't get your item. Yeah. And that's actually a legitimate marketing term. F-O-M-E. I know. Yeah, fear of missing out. That motivates a hell of a lot of people. Well, this is the fear of missing out. Well, this is fear, this is fear of, of not getting the experience you want. Because a lot of people, when they buy like a knockoff product, you know, in their mind, they're like, oh, it's just as good. It's 100%. 100% replica. Like yeah. one-to-one copy. And it's like, I don't, like, it's, it's the, like, like they believe the marketing of the illegal watch, you know, like copier. Like why, why are they any more, uh, you know, credible when they say that this is a perfect replica than when they were deciding to disregard intellectual property laws? Like they literally believe that. So until you see them side by side, you'd be like, oh, they promise it's the same thing. Well, then, you know, I must believe them. Well, and that's even something that the, the independent uh, watch industry, I think, sort of struggles with quite a bit. Because think of, you know, one of your favorite independent brands, a new watch comes out They're Of course, they're rather expensive because they're not making 60,000 watches an hour kind of thing. They're small, handmade, you know, artisanal products. So a new watch comes out and there's always these comments from someone says, oh, why would I pay that for, uh, for one of uh, Stepan Sarpaneva's watches? Why would I pay that one for that price? Or, or the get... person's like, I saw that on AliExpress. No, you didn't. Yeah, yeah. No, you or didn't. I... I can get three vintage, you know, and they start listing off all these different Seikos and Rolexes. I'm like, oh, go do that. Go do it. Rock on. Like, that's fine. But why would I have this fancy meal when I could buy 10 pizzas? Well, go buy 10 yeah. pizzas. Have fun flying on that nice Boeing aircraft. I'm going to use this one that my uncle made in his backyard and saved 100 smoking <laughs> flames and death everywhere. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about some of the the watches that you've done because you've done some interesting collaboration products, um, all, you know, really kind of all over the place, which I think is cool, really kind of a nice combination of your 
aesthetic with the different materials as well as you know the the luminous products. Why don't you just list off for people who don't know uh, what was the brand, what was the watch, and for someone that isn't seeing it, what's sort of the most important uh, one or two points about that watch? Oh, good lord! I should have made notes. Um, the first one that I worked on was the Schofield Black Lamp, Schofield Watch Company of the UK, and that would have been about 2013. Um, that was really funky, actually, because that's a, a very sort of handmade, artisanal, quite a very classic British brand. And we had come up with a, they wanted to have a, a, a solid carbon fiber case, which was very distant from their aesthetic, which was this kind of bronzy, like something Hemingway would wear, you know, kind of brassy and bronzy. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I consulted with them before the brand started. I remember those guys uh, pretty yeah, well. Yeah, Giles, Giles Ellis is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. What I really liked about them was they wanted to do a carbon fiber watch, not because they wanted this aspirational, I want people to think I'm a test pilot. They just used carbon fiber because it reminded them of the striations in the rock formations around, I think it's Southern Cornwall, where, where the brand is from. So th this really piqued my interest because they're using carbon purely because of the way that it looks. That was cool. So it was, a it was a style move and you were compelled to do it. Was it because it was, you know, stylish? Was it a technical challenge for you? Like, like do you get compelled by a challenge or like, look, some people in your shoes at this point in your career, you could be like, that's too hard. I don't want to do that. Or are you like still trying to chase like, oh, I want to do something I haven't done before. Absolutely still chasing it. I'm, I'm like a dog with a tennis ball. I, I don't know how to do anything else. Please, please don't ask me to become an architect or to fix your water heater. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> so, okay. So what happened after the, the Schofield uh, Black Lantern? Uh, well, after the, after the Schofield Black Lamp came out, that was the first watch that actually used solid, solid loom material. So it actually had a solid chapter ring made of this previous generation of, of glow material that I was using. And it, it really sort of kicked something off because it got people saying, well, hang on. If it doesn't have to be just a painted surface, if I can actually make little structural components for the watch out of this, that opens up an entirely new aesthetic manufacturing design experience. And no one had done this until this point? Uh, if, I, if I say nobody, I guarantee someone will find something and just make me look like an idiot. But if I but can it make wasn't, the... it wasn't common. There was, an, there was a novel approach here. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was an absolute technical challenge because this wasn't a material. It was meant to be used for very delicate, precise watch case pieces. This was something that like people that make diving knives would put a chunk of this in the handle so that if you drop your knife in the lake, you know, you can find it and all this kind of stuff. So to mill these 1.45 millimeter thin little rings out of it uh, was unbelievably challenging because this was my first watch project. So I didn't have the cool toys I do now. I was making these on a lathe. And you can imagine oh, wow. how, how long it took to make, you know, 50 of these things. I was just about ready to jump out a window. Because if it's 1.5 millimeters instead of 1.45 millimeters, well, it sits crooked. The case doesn't close. The movement's going to be pooched. So basically, it was, it was a little naive on my part because I was trying to hand replicate CNC precision. And it, it worked. I, I don't ever want to do that again. Uh, there's yeah, that's impressive. That sounds yeah. tedious. It, it, tedious. It, it was tedious as hell. But, you know, I was, I was, it was before my spirit had been broken. <laughs>
So <laughs> I know, depressing. So following that, um, about 2014, 15, 16 was a really, really interesting period because kind of at the same time, via going to Salon QP in London mostly, I met Max Booster of MBNF and Stepan Sarpaneva. And this was a couple of projects that were happening sort of concurrently at the same time, but really exciting because it was it was using this solid form luminescent material in in very established brands that already had a very established aesthetic. So it wasn't one of these things where you just sort of pop into their design studio and skip around sprinkling fairy dust everywhere. You had to make something that was on brand for them. Otherwise, people are going to look at it and say, well, that's stupid. You know, at what point does a Porsche start to look like a Honda? Like, what's that aesthetic tipping point? So that was very fun. And these were very, very well-respected independent brands. So there was a massive um, exposure and benefit and support and all that from both these brands. And they're a lot of the reason why I'm speaking to you here today. And actually, if if I'm not mistaken... Do you say no a lot? Uh... I probably should. <laughs> About that time, I actually did. I did almost kind of build a bit of a fence around myself, because especially the the MB, what would become the MBNF HMX Black Badger, I could tell this was the opus. This was my this was my shot, and because some of the other projects were getting a lot of exposure, thanks to blogs like yourself, and they were getting a lot of media. All these other brands were coming in saying, you know, oh, yeah, we're doing a diving watch. Can you kind of do for us what you did for Max? Or can you do kind of what you did for the Schofield, but can you do it in this color? And I, I was very polite, but I had to say no a lot. And I would always explain and saying, look, I've got this mega thing coming and I don't want to be watering down the wine. So that when my big break comes, people look at it and go, oh, yeah, yeah, another, another one of those. Okay. Hmm. What else? Can yeah, you, do? you can't sort of overdo it. But the watch industry is funny that way. So once you get hot, everybody wants to do something with you, and they don't necessarily recognize that that's not how the consumer works. Like, like they want to see your name, you know, every couple of months as opposed to every day. I mean, same thing with my yeah. name. You know what I mean? Like, y- you you have to have a relationship with them, but you can't go nuts. And some of these marketers just like message them every seventy two hours. It's like that's not what people want. And I think because I'm. As we talked about in the beginning, I'm, I'm a little hypersocial. Um, I, I really like talking about what I love doing. You know, I mean, if you're sitting in a pub talking to somebody, it's, it's really enjoyable if you can talk about whatever your hobby is. With me, my hobby became my career. So I, you know, have a hard time saying to somebody, oh, sorry, thank you for the offer for being on your a blog to watch podcast. But, you know, I think everyone's hearing, everyone's sick of hearing me flap my mouth. So no thanks. But as an artist, that's what you got to do. As an artist, yeah. As a business owner, there's a little bit different sort of tipping point on that. Well, you met, we talked about this few years ago. Remember I said that you needed a good manager? Yeah, still do. I said that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken... Was I, what, what, do you think I was right? Or what? I did not know what I was talking about? Oh, you have no idea what you're doing. No, you, you, you absolutely <laughs> do with this. And I think that's something, that's a skill, self-editing is a skill that I think should absolutely be taught in design school, especially in this era of social media, instant, you know, sort of TikTok, instant visual gratification. There's this vibe of 
not just publish or perish, but like to the millionth degree. Throw out every idea, every line you've ever made on a piece of paper and just shotgun the hell out of it out there. <laughs> and, it, and it makes you feel good. It makes it feel like you're setting the pace, like you're really taking part in things. But then you go back and look at it later and you're like, well, somebody shut this kid up. Right. Well, like, the funny thing is that culturally, Americans and Canadians and a few others, we grew up in this place where it's very sort of encouraged that you say whatever you think. Every, you know, every opinion is holy, so to say. But yeah. in so many other parts of the world, especially people who live under more authoritarian regimes, there's no culture of, of course, your opinion matters. Like most people have been self-censoring because they've had to for a lot longer than us. You know what I mean? Well, especially now, but living in Sweden and I've been over here for almost 20 years now, the, the, the cultural mindset, I mean, you would almost never you know, stand up in a chair in the middle of a restaurant and start telling everybody your accomplishments and how awesome you are. You know, they would just be throwing bottles at you. Whereas that, yeah, you got to be more humble. Yeah. And just accept, the fact, as they accept say. the fact that you will never be widely recognized or celebrated in your own country. I mean, I've heard, I've heard ABBA talk about this phenomenon. <laughs> oh, we're more popular in Australia than we were in Sweden. Hmm, that kind of sucks. <laughs> but I also think there is a lot of benefit to that because you end up not rattling your mouth off 24 hours a day. I'm just noticing we're almost running out of time. We still have some more watches to cover. We couldn't we couldn't get through the superlative podcast without talking about all your watches. Sorry. There's let's okay, let's talk about the LVMH ones and let's talk about the MW and Co. What else am I forgetting? Uh Arcanaut? Arcanaut, of course. There's of course. the new Arcanaut new brand. from Denmark. So yeah. Arcanaut's the brand that you're what's your relationship? Because this is a this is a local brand to you. You're working with them. Are you part of it? What's the deal with that? Uh yes, on all fronts. Arcanaut okay. is, is a small Danish, Copenhagen-based watch brand. Danish brand. Okay. Uh, it's only a couple years old. Uh, a very good friend of mine, Anders Brandt, uh, created this company. Um, I, I worked on the first release called the Arc One about a year and a half ago, and I just sort of provided some loom design consulting. I sh showed them how to manufacture some things and sort of connected them up with the right facilities. When it came time for the Arc Two, which is literally releasing like now... It was, well, it's maybe kind of a dumb idea if we have every single watch we release be a guest starring James Black Badger collab. So they're like, why don't we just bring you in as a part owner of the company? So I've actually got a good chunk of the, of the business. And, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhere to hang my hat. I still do all the crazy, all the crazy external collaborations with people like Dave Batoon and MW and co and all these an Arcanaut is kind of a place where I can hang my hat a little bit. Okay. So yeah, we've got a watch coming want, out. Have more control, learn. Yeah. And it's really, really fun because it's a, I would say something like 85% of the watches manufactured in Denmark, which is very difficult to do at that price point because the watch is coming in at 3,500 US. So for a small boutique brand, and we're doing a lot of the work ourselves, it's almost more impressive than the visual aesthetic of the watch is the fact that we're getting in at that price point. And I'm doing, technically my position is chief of materials development, which is kind of a bit of a, a goofy way of saying, I mean, we made the dials on this new watch and I made them by taking chunks of slate stone, busting it up with a hammer, putting that gravel through an industrial espresso grinder, and then recasting the dials out of this funky sort of stone composite that I made. 
Okay, that's interesting. Because when I see the dial, I don't know what it is. But now that you've explained, I'm like, okay, I can see that. I mean, I've yeah. never seen one of these things. I just saw the big. I didn't know about this until today. No one told me about it. Oh, Arcanaut's great. We're having a pile of fun with it. Um, and it's got a very Danish architectural vibe to it. Anders has such a clean aesthetic that when he and I come together, I can sort of do the goofy, let's make it all look like it's radioactive. But then when you couple that with this very sensible Danish, more of an art, more of an architectural aesthetic, you get just enough of the contrast that it's interesting. I don't want to make this thing look like it's some kind of, you know, crashed satellite from space kind of it's, thing. It, it looks like the thing that the person designed before this watch was like a very calming office space. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably it. So, so Arcanaut is something that we're working with kind of on a daily basis. Uh, it, it's all happening right now. Um, and there's tons of, you know, pics and all that sort of stuff on my Instagram. Take a look at that. Uh, the MW and Co. That's something that's really, really exciting because that's been happening for about maybe a year and a half now. Um, MW and Co. is a, a very small brand out of Toulouse in southern France. And one of the first things you learn about Toulouse is Toulouse is where Airbus is from. Their, their okay. main sort of like, origin. I heard that. So what that means is there's basically everybody that lives there had an uncle, a sister, a brother, somebody who worked at Airbus. So that gives this little, very hip, four or five person company access to micro-engineering and micro-manufacturing locally that is way beyond what the average sort of startup can get. So it lets them really punch above their weight. Well, people need to understand that if you are a watch designer and you need your parts made, it is really not so simple as going to your standard manufacturing company. The types of finishing and tolerances and small volumes necessary in watch parts are such that only very, very specialist manufacturers will even want to take the project on. So everybody that wants to make a high-end watch is entirely limited by who they can get to make parts. Sorry, go ahead. Well, and also every company, like if we need to have some super specialist little company in Asia, micro Milson little piece, they, they might be the most you know, honorable, fantastic company in the world. But as the owner of that startup, you're sending your confidential plans out into the darkness, hoping that person's going to say, yes, we can make this or no, sorry, we can't, but good luck. And you've now sent right. out all your specs to all these places all over the world. So it's really kind of a little nerve wracking. Yeah. And that's what you spend all this time and effort on. And, and you know, it is a very real thing in this space that once you have a successful product, it gets copied. Yeah. You know, like you, you've had your products copied. Um, well, actually, you know, th this MW watch, not, not to sort of step on any toes too publicly here, but we... It was we, copied? We, oh, Christ, yeah. Invicta. Oh, my God. You know what? That doesn't surprise <laughs> me. It, look, it looks like a fishing lure. It just looks like such a piece of crap. But doesn't, that, doesn't that speak for most of their things? I mean, look, <sighs> I, I, look Invicta is a good gateway brand, but I'll just say this. No one that ends up becoming a connoisseur of watches ever ends up staying with Invicta or or continuing to bring it. Like it's like it's like saying I'm into cars, but really all I play with are like you know like Hot Wheels and Mattel things. Like it's a toy. It's not really not what you. It's the toy. It's always going to be a toy. It sort of looks like the real thing, but ultimately it's still just a toy. 
Well, and anytime you kind of hack on a brand like that, there's always going to be this pushback from everyone saying, well, well you're just a snob because I know that you have a yes, Rolex Daytona, blah, blah, blah. I deserve to be a snob. <laughs> I've seen so many watches. If there, if there is someone out there that is going to be a watch snob, it's, you want me to be the watch snob. You don't want people who don't know watches to be watch snobs. You don't, want to, you don't want to pair snobbery with ignorance. That's a very dangerous combination. You, you know that I know what I'm talking about. Well said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so the asshats in the Victor copied it, and they were jerks about it. Anyhow. <laughs> I, so, I, have, I have one of these, the, the base watch, which is the asset. That is M, uh, MW and Co. I, look, I love that brand, but I just am never going to get over how difficult it is to say that name. It looks nice written out. Um, but this is... Every, you know, this is really what, what I think aficionados like yourself and I admire. 100% original design. Every yeah. single part had to be made unique for this. They went out of their way to be different, yet still is a good tool watch. Not, not inappropriately priced. I mean, look, it's still hovering around 10000 bucks. Yours is, is, is more, actually, your limited edition of just 10 pieces. But yours has, you know loom all over the place like we've gone we've gone just bat poop crazy with this thing and actually on the subject yeah. of price i went to see these guys in in toulouse and it might even be two years ago now and originally when this piece was going to come out i mean we were looking at i think it was going to be a twenty-five thousand dollar piece because the manufacturing was so small and it was all being done local and you cannot drive that price down unless you want to do the kind of invicta thing and then covid came and that part of the world, that part of southern France, got really, really, really hit hard. So there was shutdowns. I think at least two or three of the main manufacturing companies that were doing parts, that were in the process of doing parts, went out of business. So we had to basically take this project back on again, not that long ago, and say, it's 2021. The world's waking up again. Nobody's winning right now. Everybody is just treading water. So we actually looked at the design again and trimmed off a pile of baby fat. What we wanted to do is have the watch look exactly the same, but now it's 14,000 euros instead of about 2025. 20, we got that's rid a of a big difference. That's a big difference. And this was a lot of work. Self-editing is not something I like, but it was like the watch had so many different kinds of coatings on all the different internal components and all that. And it was really finding how can we create that same experience but save you ten thousand dollars so it's actually coming in at fourteen thousand euros now which is a you know i mean okay it's still obviously i think that's very smart and it gives you an opportunity to do like a plus version in the future when there are factories again <laughs> yeah yeah but we we still wanted to do it but it, it needed to be a little more appropriate for the world right now where, um, where are you seeing more growth? Is it in watches? Is it in jewelry? Because you straddle these two worlds that, yes, they are related. But as you know, from a business perspective, the jewelry industry and the watch industry are never really that parallel. They're sort of doing their own thing. Which, where, where is their growth right now? Which one excites you more from a business person perspective? Well, the watch industry is, is really sort of where my, where my heart is. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm still just sort of completely caught up in the romance of that whole aesthetic but those are much longer story arc projects right yeah i mean the work i did with david toon on the uh v28 uh, grand blue that was just over two years ago you know like it's it's there it takes a long time to manufacture and get everything set up for these whereas with the rings i i 
talked to a company in Florida three weeks ago that has this new black titanium that has all these crazy cool properties. You heat it up with a blowtorch and it turns jet black. And cool. a week after talking to them, I've got that stuff here and I'm sort of milling it on my machinery here and making rings out of it, finding out that it likes to catch fire. That's always interesting. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll burst into flames if you don't use enough coolant. Good to know. <laughs> what? Why? Is it a bunch of magnesium in it or something? Zerk. Yeah, it's got some Zerk in the alloy. Okay. But even that, like, I can't, get away, I can't get away with doing just titanium or carbon rings anymore because that's been so, so many people have jumped on that aesthetic now that I'm sort of doing rings out of superconductor. I've got this super magnesium alloy, which is something purely sort of Air Force variant. And if you don't know what you're doing, it'll, it's magnesium. You'll start a fire. So here's a final question on that, and then we'll we'll end because we've had great conversation. I loved all these topics, but like we could just keep going and going and going. And this is the Ariel Adams question. Out of all these materials and things like that, which ones are actually good as, you know, ring materials or watch materials? When I say good, I'm talking about durable, nice to nice to touch, uh, you know, lasts over time, environmentally resistant, like, you know. There's no requirement out there that you, as a jewelry maker, sell something that actually lasts. Of course, if you want to have a good reputation, you need to. But I'm just yeah. curious, as someone that appreciates, you know, like utilitarian materials, what have you discovered, which is just an awesome material, like from a durability and performance perspective? It's a bit of a hell of my own creation, because a lot of times the things that you're really excited about, the things that are new and the things that are novel, there's kind of a reason why nobody's thought to make an engagement ring out of a piece of a 70,000 year old woolly mammoth molar, which I've done. <laughs> right. But then you have to like incorporate some kind of a titanium inner structure to it and all, all these kinds of things. Um, the, the pieces that are the most resilient, I would say are the pieces that are the most repairable. So steel and titanium, these kind of things are great because you can bang the crap out of it. And then you can basically put it back on the lathe and resurface it. Carbon fiber, the way that I use it with this side profile is very repairable. If you're using that kind of wrapped checkerboard aesthetic, that's not really as repairable mm -hmm. because you'll see it in the pattern. Right. Um, but the kind of stuff that I'm wearing every day, I, I've got some, some black ceramic that I do sort of quite a lot of my, my horizon rings on my web shop from. And those, like when I'm milling titanium, the tooling head is basically made of the same material. So it's, it's very, very, very durable. Yeah, ceramic's amazing. Yeah. But... I like the aesthetic of other things more. I love the aesthetic of the super magnesium because if you drop it in salt water after two or three days, it, it's very reactive to the salt water. So it picks it and it eats away at it along sort of the crystalline structure of the metal. So we basically get this ring that looks like it's been lost in space for a couple of hundred years. Kind of cool. Why not? It just gives you another story to tell with it. So what, what, are, what is bad about them? Are they fragile? Do they scratch? Are they you know, you get allergic reactions to them. Like what, like what are some of the funny things you're like, oh, I didn't know this material would not be good for this. I didn't know this material would catch fire. Um, okay, there's that. <laughs> that's, that's kind of part of my job is finding out what things can't do. I mean, a lot of this, a, a lot of the inner parts of rings that I'm doing is using something called Fordite, which is what I used on the Bamford collaboration watch with a, a Tag Heuer, the Fordite dial. Fordite is essentially the extra overspray paint that builds up in industrial car factories. So all the crap that spills on the floor and, you know, all the sort of airborne builds up on the walls. 
After oh, you, I know that stuff. There's all yeah. these different colors and layers. All these different and stuff. colors. After you painted yeah. three or four or five thousand cars, that layer can be like two inches thick. And yeah. when you bang it off of the hammer and cut the cross section, you get all these perfect, gorgeous lines of brilliant car paint. Now, as a material, that probably isn't strong enough to make a ring 100% out of just that because it's car paint. It was never meant to be used as a ring. Yeah, it's but not a, there can not be a substrate. If, if it's on the inside and it's got carbon or titanium or something beefier on the outside, you can absolutely incorporate it. If it's a watch dial, of course it's going to be strong enough because it's inside the watch. So it's just that kind seems of, to be one of your favorite materials when you're playing with that paint. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's so much fun because I have zero control over the final product. When you're sanding a dial, the, these uh, dials we did with Bamford, each of those dials, if I would have sanded it for less than 20 seconds more, colors would have been totally different. Yeah. You and th- th- these, were the, uh, these were the Tag Heuer ones, right? Yes. Yeah. So this is, you took, and again, I'm just trying to explain to someone who hasn't seen it. Uh, this is a Carrera watch, I believe. Yeah. Completely took away the stock dial and replaced it with a dial that I don't even think it had hour markers. It had hands and basically like um, <laughs> polished layers of car paint that has that wood grain look, but like in all these different car paint colors. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Uh, George and I wanted to use the Carrera because it's a big, flat, open stage. By getting rid of the hour markers, by getting rid of the, the date window... All these things on a regular dial would look fine. But because you know this Fordite is going to be so busy, it's like this insane, drugged-out, multicolored cloud pattern. It's pretty psychedelic. It's pretty psychedelic. And by just getting everything else out of the way, like we were saying before about being a chef and ingredients, by just letting the material tell its story without anything else getting in the way, you end up with something quite clean. If there would have been sub-dials, it would have just been a visual mess. Okay, well, you know what? I think that everyone after listening to this needs to go out and check out some of these watches. Uh, we mentioned a whole a whole bunch of them. There's going to be more. So I'm really glad to hear that you've got more projects you're working on. Um, I even have ideas, but we'll talk about that. I just, <laughs> I'm, I yeah, look, I, I, I like this stuff just like you. That 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 idea of making something new and seeing the result and looking at it, nodding your head and thinking, yeah, that worked out well. Like that's a that's a pretty good high, right? Like that's something worth chasing. Well, now, if I'm not mistaken, you were actually there when I was given my own personal MBNF from from Harris. I think you were the one that was filming yes. when he was handing it to me. How cool is yes. that? <laughs> yes, I remember that. It was funny because, yeah, that's how you got your watch. Yeah. He just he just sort of hops over. There's no pomp or circumstance. He's like, and uh, here you go, sir. Uh, you know, you yeah. mind signing this? I just handed over an expensive object to you and I'll be on my way. If, if you hadn't have been there, I, I, I think I kind of threw my phone to you or something. You know, I would... I wouldn't have had that little video to show my mom, <laughs> you know, or my yeah, family. Yeah, and, that, and that's and that, that's, that's those very those cool. different colors of the uh, the uh, the MBNF ones. Those are cool. Those are really cool. I recommend. There's you can you can see them on a blog to watch. The website is blackbadger.se, that or is you correct. can visit visit his Instagram page. And the man again is James Thompson. James, thank you so much for uh, being on this. And uh, I think we'll have to talk again soon, okay? Absolutely. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.
Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?